Hello, and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we jump back across the pond to Europe to hike a beautiful mountain trail that has enormous payoff in views for the very reasonable effort required. Yes, this is not just a route for hardened adventurers who like to rough it. As we will see, this might even be a fantastic trek to take your family on. We'll enjoy fantastic food and welcoming mountain refugios, where we'll encounter a wide range of travelers along this route that takes more than a week to do in full, through a mountain range that is itself a UNESCO World Heritage Site. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Alta Via 1 in the Dolomites of northern Italy. Welcome to the show, everyone. If you have ideas for the show, feel free to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. We have our Walking the Walk segment where we talk about listeners who have hiked a trail after listening to an episode about it. But today, we're going to defer that segment until the actual interview because our guests today are Morgan and Sage Fielder. They have a, a blog called Crave the Planet and soon to be a podcast. And Morgan is a listener of the show as well. And I mentioned her in our last episode on the Walking the Walk segment because she hiked the Rota Vicentina Fisherman's Trail in Portugal after hearing episode 10 of the podcast about the trail. But on this episode, Morgan will tell us a little bit more about her hike on the Rota Vicentina. And then Morgan and Sage together will tell us about their adventures on the Altavia 1 in the Dolomites of northern Italy. I have a good friend from Milan, Italy, who for decades has been telling me I have to go to the Dolomites. But as of this recording, I still haven't done it. So doing this episode has convinced me that that will have to change. The way Morgan and Sage talk about it, you can't help but fall in love with it. So let's talk about the Dolomites. But let's start, as we like to, with a story. And we'll go back in time in the Dolomites way back to tell a story, a saga really, about the kingdom of Fanes. Once upon a time in the Dolomites, a woman lived in a cave at the foot of Crota Rosa, Red Peak, and she lived among the marmots by the shore of a lake. Another woman came back from a foreign land with a baby and later died. The woman living in the cave adopted the baby and raised the baby, Moltina, among the marmots that lived in the mountains. And eventually, as the baby grew to be a young woman, she could turn herself into a marmot. Eventually, she married a prince. And he later became king of the area and built a castle with a marmot painted as its symbol. So the dynasty of the Fanes began, built out of an alliance between humans and the marmots. They lived in peace for some time, But later, a crown princess of the family married a foreign prince allied with the eagles, and they replaced the marmot with an eagle symbol. They decided to expand the kingdom, 
And later, he trained his daughter to grow up as a warrior. And eventually, Dolacilla, his daughter, became a fierce warrior. She helped the dwarves and was given from them impenetrable armor and unfailing arrows. The dwarves told her she'd be invincible until she got married, and she was told not to go to battle if the armor ever changed color. The armor was a bright white when she received it. For a time, the kingdom prospered. But eventually, Dolacilla fell in love with an enemy warrior, Adonai, the son of a sorcerer. Because of the dwarves' prophecy, the king opposed the marriage. But to try to make this marriage work, and so that her father would approve of it, the couple pledged never to fight again. But despite that, the king banished Adonai. And then he took his entire kingdom underground, literally, in the land of Orona. And to do this, he allied with an enemy kingdom to the south. His goal was to prevent Dolacilla from fighting and losing his daughter, as the dwarves prophesied would happen if she eventually married. He was willing to give up his kingdom for this, as long as he can access the underground kingdom of Orona. But eventually the fighting resumed, even after the kingdom had retreated to being underground, and Dolacilla broke her pledge not to fight and joined the battle. But as was prophesied, her armor started to turn dark, and Adonai saw what was happening and tried to help her, but he was too late. Dolacilla fought valiantly, and was even on the verge of victory. But the enemy archers had actually stolen her unfailing arrows, and she was killed in battle by her own arrows. Her father-in-law, to be, Adonai's father, was actually a sorcerer, and had tricked her into giving the arrows to a ragged group of boys that she didn't know were allied with him. So when the battle came, the enemy had her arrows. And the sorcerer, after the battle, shamed the king for allowing his daughter to fight and be killed. The king turned to stone and can still be seen in the mountain at Lagatsui at the pass of Falzarego. Eventually, the Fanes fought a guerrilla war coming out from the underground for several years, fighting and retreating, fighting and retreating. And then eventually, after that, after many years, there was an all-out battle. And the Fanes, though, were defeated and only 20 women and children survived, hiding among the marmots. And there was also a prophecy, even then, about the resurrection of the Fanes. But to date, it hasn't come to pass. Now, you might reasonably ask, Jeremy, what are you talking about? This is a story that likely dates back to the Bronze Age, about 800 BC, it's thought. The locations are real. The Fanes Plateau, the lake which is Lake Breas. You'll hear about Lagosui in the conversation today with Morgan and Sage. And it's suspected that the civilization that the story is based on existed and was a totemistic society based on a cult around the marmot. Who were these people? We don't know, but the story today comes to us through a people who still live in the Dolomites, the Ladin people. That's L-A-D-I-N, not L-A-T-I-N. The Ladin people still live in the Dolomites in South Tyrol, Trentino, and Belluno, which is the region where this hike is. The town of Cortina d'Ampezzo is one of the towns of their homeland. 
In fact, Cortina d'Ampezzo has its own dialect of Latin. Only about 5% of the population of the area today speaks Latin. There are different estimates about how many people that actually is, but we can guess somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people speak it as their native language today. Latin is related to the Swiss Romance language, and yes, as it sounds like, it is also related to Latin. There are a number of villages in the Dolomites where it is the majority language. And the Kingdom of Fane saga is the national epic of the Latin people. So if you hike the Altavia one, when you see the marmots and the people, remember their old alliance. All right, enough of me telling fairy tales or sagas. Let's talk about the Dolomites themselves. What are the Dolomites? These are the Alps of Europe, but in northeastern Italy, a subsection of the Alps. And the name is based on a carbonate sedimentary rock that predominates in the area called Dolomite. The rock is actually named after a French mineralogist, Deodat Gratte de Dolomieu. He was the first person to describe the rock. And the rock dolomite forms in conjunction with limestone. So it's often the, the cliffs and mountains in the area are a mix of limestone and dolomite and were ancient seabeds. But today are impressive mountains. There's 18 peaks that reach over 3,000 meters high or about 10,000 feet and a lot more peaks that are not quite so high. In 2009, in fact, the entire mountain range was declared a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. And UNESCO had this to say about the Dolomites. The Dolomites are widely regarded as being among the most attractive mountain landscapes in the world. Their intrinsic beauty derives from a variety of spectacular vertical forms, such as pinnacles, spires, and towers, with contrasting horizontal surfaces including ledges, crags, and plateau, all of which rise abruptly above extensive talus deposits and more gentle foothills. A great diversity of colors is provided by the contrast between the bare, pale-colored rock surfaces and the forest and meadows below. The mountains rise as peaks with intervening ravines, in some places standing isolated, but in others forming sweeping panoramas. Some of the rock cliffs here rise more than 1,500 meters and are among the highest limestone walls found anywhere in the world. So that's what UNESCO had to say about the Dolomites. The cultural history there, besides the Ladines, who have been there for a long time, also includes conquering nations and peoples. The Romans conquered the area in 15 BC, the Goths in 476 AD. A century later, the Bavarians came in, and it was actually an independent country of Tyrol with quasi-autonomy from Bavaria for a few hundred years until Napoleon. The area also plays an important uh, role and has an important story in World War I. At the time, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and not part of Italy. In fact, even today, 75% of the people in this area speak German. The initial tragedy of World War I for this area was that many of the fighting age men were sent off to fight on the Russian front, where they were essentially decimated and many of them died. But then in May 1915... Italy declared war against the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And at the time, because all the 
fighting age men had left and were mostly killed before this, only boys and old men were left to defend the area. Italy took Cortina d'Ampezzo without a shot being fired, but then couldn't take Coldolina, and in that area, trench warfare ensued. And for any student of World War I, you know how that went. Bloody and pointless. But the biggest problem actually became winter. Thousands in the area, some estimate as high as 10,000 people, died from the weather alone over the next two years during the war. In fact, some of the locals resorted to building a city of tunnels under one of the glaciers to protect themselves from the fighting. One remnant of World War I is the Via Ferrata, the bolted-down steel cables built by both the Italians and the Austrians in the war to move supplies through the mountains. At Cinque Torre, one of the areas that Morgan and Sage went to, there's a famous Via Ferrata route where you can climb these cables. Though keep in mind that the Via Ferrata are not part of the Alta Via 1 route, though they could make an interesting side trip or separate trip in the area. Even as late as World War II, ownership of the area was still disputed. But as we've said today, it is part of Italy. All right, with that background, let's jump into my conversation with Morgan and Sage Fielder about their hikes on the Alta Via 1. Morgan and Sage Fielder, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. No problem. You. you guys have started a blog called Crave the Planet. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Crave the Planet is a platform and a, a community of people that want to reconnect to wonder and things that really count. So it's all about food. It's about hiking. It's about travel and especially the outdoor scene in Europe, because here you can merge nature and culture and you don't have to pick between them. You can have these experiences in breathtaking natural wonder, but then have a really comfortable bed and a three-course dinner at night on a little mountain hut. So so I should back up and say you guys are American, but you live in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you get to do all your adventures or a lot of your adventures in Europe. There's a focus on the blog on family adventures. And Sage, what is it like doing hikes with your mom and then being able to write about it and put it up on the internet? How has that been for you? I really like hiking. It allows me to kind of bond with my mom because we fight a lot. And when we're hiking, we don't really fight. Do you get to have any input into the blog or for you, is it more about doing the hiking? It's definitely more about doing the hiking for me. I'm more action. Most of the time, my mom, she asked me what she should write, and I tell her I have no idea. And she comes up to me with her computer. She's like, what should I write? Sage, help me. <laughs> it sounds like maybe you're the producer and she's just doing the writing. <laughs> yeah, she's the boss. We, we all know that. <laughs> so, so talk a little bit, Morgan, about the importance of hiking with family to you and what it's been like for you to hike with your daughter on such interesting and, and pretty and long and intense hikes. You know, it is. It's crazy. I never really thought about backpacking or hiking in the States that much because it's it's kind of grueling and difficult. And we just didn't live in a place that like people were doing it. But when we moved here to Germany, I think hiking and just sort of being outside is really in the air. A lot of people do it. And it's not something that's reserved for ultra fit people that have all the gear and whatnot. So 
we got exposed to it through Sage's teacher, actually, because she goes to a local German school and she's probably in her 60s. Frau Fressel is super awesome. And she knew we were kind of sporty. And she's like, you should try this, this thing in Italy where, where you go on these beautiful hikes on the tops of the mountains, but every night you stay in the little hut. And I didn't even think such a thing existed because honestly, convincing my kids to go on a backpacking trip or running or something that's really arduous, you know, there's no carrot at the end of that that's easy. But then when I found out about the hut system and the fact that it's kind of comfortable, it just made it a lot easier to convince everyone to come along with me on these adventures. And then lo and behold, they love it, which is amazing. And it really feels like something that it gives you perspective and the ability to really let go of all your daily stuff. And, you know, just again, kind of come back to what's really important. And Sage, what do you think about going to these huts in the mountains? Has that been pretty fun for you? Oh, yeah, it's lots of fun. It's weird because I expected it to be kind of like a hostel where you bring your own stuff and then you sleep on low quality beds or even on the floor or something like that. But it was totally different. It's it's like a normal hotel some places, but not as I'd say it's not quite as luxurious, but it's really nice. It's not what you'd expect. You don't have to bring your own food. And Morgan, it seems like the food's an important part of these adventures for you as well. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We love food and really good food experiences, right? So it's kind of the whole thing where you, you know, you're there with your family and your friends or even just other hikers. And you have these sit down meals and they're three or four courses. And you can tell that the owners, they really take pride and they have a different menu every day. And it's just, I don't know, it's just... Food, of course, tastes better after hiking. Sure. As you all know, but it's so, it's just so good. It blows my mind that you can be on the top of a mountain on a craggy peak and then you have, you know, vegetarian lasagna with different side dishes and local wine and fresh orange juice, all these things that you'd expect in kind of a more of a typical tourist experience. But it's up there on the top of the mountain, which is really cool. And Sage, how old were you when you did the first trip like this with your mom? I was either 11 or 12. Yeah, you were 11. Oh, I was? Yeah, 11. How old are you now? I'm 13 now. Okay, so it's been a couple of years. Was the Altavia one the first multi-day trip you guys did together? Yeah, I think it was, Mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had actually done the a few days, maybe seven days of the Camino de Santiago on the Frances route with an adult friend. That was my first experience with the multi-day hiking. And then the Altavia one was the second one. And it was a family trip that we, you know, had been in, trying to do for a while. But I, it was really hard for me to figure it out because all the websites were in German or Italian. We finally figured it out for 2020, just when COVID struck. So it ended up that only Sage and I could go because my husband and my other daughter, Sasha, had to stay home in quarantine. Yeah, interesting timing. It made it so that you guys weren't able to do it as a family, but it sounds like you and Sage were able to do something together that maybe otherwise you wouldn't have had that time, just the two of you. So maybe it worked out in a different kind of way. It did. It did. And actually we, ha- <laughs> I had the four, the four spots because you have to prepay, you know, six months in advance or whatnot. So I'll never make this mistake again. I was like, oh, well, we have these two extra spots, but you know, Aaron and Sasha can't go. Let's just invite another friend of Sage's. That way it'll be more fun. And what we didn't realize was that 
every kid has a different tolerance level. And before impulsively inviting someone to go with you, it's definitely a good idea to make sure that they're up for it because we ended up hiking the first day, which is very steep uphill. It's a very long, the hardest day probably. And we had to turn around and come back. And the girl that had come with us had to return back to Germany. So her parents came and got her. Sage and I slept in the valley. And then we did the next day to catch up to our reservations. We hiked the first two days in one day. Oh, wow. Yeah. As you probably can guess, I've done a lot of multi-day hikes over the years. And there's always things like that. Nothing ever goes exactly the way you think it's going to go. And the dynamic in a group is always a little different than you think. And people you think might be strong hikers sometimes aren't. And other people are much stronger than you think. It really is something you have to have flexibility for, right? Because things are going to change and you kind of have to roll with it. And it's yeah. part of what, what you're doing out there. Yeah, it actually ended up being really great, just the two of us. All right. So we'll jump back that into that in a minute. One other thing I wanted to highlight before we move on is it, um, you were going to be starting a podcast, right? Yes. Yes, I am. Is that basically a mirror image of the blog or is it a little different? It's going to be similar to the blog and sort of creating that community. But what I want to do is share the stories of people who are doing these multi-day hikes, some of the people who are in the industry as well, like some of the hut owners, the fitness around training for it and some of the gear stuff. Because honestly, I, I don't think there's a lot of information out there that's easy to find. So it took me two years of planning for the Altavia one because I just couldn't find the good information. And podcasts like yours are amazing. It helps kind of share that this is something that's possible and it's, you know, it takes some work to plan, but it's not insurmountable. So one thing I want to cover before we jump into the Altavia one is you reached out to me because you had actually hiked one of the trails that we featured on the show. And I get excited when I hear that somebody actually hiked the trail that I've talked about because I want it to be a, a utilitarian show in some ways, a practical show in the sense that it can give people advice or at least inspire people to go hike a trail. And you t so you ended up hiking the Rota Vicentina Fisherman's Trail in Portugal. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. The Rota Vicentina Trail is incredible. And I want to thank you so much for, for sharing that information because I'd never heard of it, never came across my radar. And I listened to your podcast with... Um, Sabrina Brett from Moon and Honey Travel. Yeah, yeah. It, and the way she described it, it was like, this is definitely up my alley. It, and it's something that you can do in the winter time because obviously the Alps aren't accessible during the winter whatsoever. It's such a short season, really. And so I had a, a little bit of free time in the end of November or the middle of November, right before Thanksgiving. And I kind of followed along that blog and just met a whole bunch of other people on the trail. And I did it my first sort of solo multi-day hike. And it was incredible. I'm going to bring the kids next year. Yeah, I guess one of the things that happens for me when I do a solo trip or a trip with friends without my family is often I have a really interesting, wonderful experience, but then sometimes I get back and I think I really want to take my family on that trip. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've done that several times. So that's cool that you enjoyed it and cool that you want to do that. And it sounds like the food there was fantastic as Sabrina promised. Oh, oh my goodness. We stopped at, well, you know, when you go solo, you end up meeting, you know, other hikers along the trail. And we ended up just having this little crew, this little club, basically for the four or five days. We ended up eating lunch right on a cliff overlooking the ocean. And I think it was like seven euros for octopus that was confit in olive oil, just in our muddy hiking boots, just <laughs> sitting, sitting there in the sunshine. And it was November with a t-shirt on. It was 
Incredible. The Portuguese food is something that I'm very, very fond of. All right. So now let's switch over to the feature trail for this episode, which is the Alta Via One. Was it Sage's teacher that came up with the idea for you guys? Yeah. So I think it was second grade. My mom and my teacher were talking and my teacher mentioned this trail in Italy and my mom loves hiking, obviously. So she was really interested in that. And Frau Fresse said that there was like wine and good food and that it was pretty, it wasn't a really hard hike. It was, it was okay. It was hard, but not extremely excruciating. And mom, you spent like two years researching it. And I didn't even remember that my teachers brought it up in the first place until my mom mentioned it a couple of days after we did it. And I was like, oh yeah, that happened. What about the planning? You said two years. That was a lot of time to to pull it together. What were you thinking about during that time? And what were the steps you went through to plan this hike? Yeah. So first, my German's not so great. I'm taking classes. <laughs> and Frau Fressel's English is not so great either. So there was a little lost in translation. And I couldn't figure out the region where she in the mountains of Italy, because there's just so many of them. And eventually I found some German websites where they would plan it for you. But again, the communication was a little bit difficult. And of course, they wanted six or 700 euros per person just to do the planning. So with four of us, that, that becomes a little bit pricey. So I kind of put it to the side. And then I think the following year, I, I just asked one of the companies, where do people normally do this? And I think the most popular ones were like Mont Blanc in France, some of the Swiss trails or whatnot. But then I, I saw this Cortina d'Ampezzo, the town in the Dolomites and saw a picture of it. And so I just started to recreate some of the itineraries and I bought the Cicerone guidebook and it pretty much steps you through what you can do. And I just sort of pieced it together one hut at a time by emailing them or calling them or WhatsApping them and trying to secure enough beds on the right day in sequence as far as I thought we could walk per day. Once you finish the hike, you put several articles on your blog and from various perspectives. And so can you talk a little bit about the resources you have out there for readers that cover different aspects of this hike? Yeah, sure. So I wished I could have found a blog <laughs> three or four years ago that was in English that described what to expect and how to plan it. Because most of the time you just go on booking.com or airbnb.com when you do a vacation, but the huts don't work that way. And you have to sort of plan like, how far can we walk? And it's not just you, but the people that are in your group, right? So some people might want to do two sections in one day. Other people might want to have really short ones. So I tried to put together basically info articles so that you can recreate it if you want with, you know, just basically how to contact the hut, what's a reasonable distance to hike each day and about how much money it's going to cost. So I put those up on cravetheplanet.com so that other people can hopefully have some of the same experiences. Those are a great resource. And thanks for doing that. So Sage, if somebody goes to this area, to the Dolomites, to, to hike the Alta Via 1, what does this area look like? What do the mountains look like? What is the scenery like? What are the towns like? What did you see when you got there? So Cortina is really pretty. It kind of looks like Austria. It was super alpine -y. It didn't really feel like Italy. It didn't feel like what you would expect in Italy. There were a lot of Austrians and Germans there. And the mountains were great. They were awesome. They were super rugged. 
there were lots of flowers. I found a lot of wildflowers. And my favorite part was the cows. They were fluffy. They had long eyelashes and they were so cute and super friendly. And it was nice because the trails weren't very restricting. So when you went on the trails, you could pet the cows and pet the animals and see the wildlife and flowers and stuff. So it was really, really pretty. They had so many, so many different types of mountains. Some were round and most of them were rugged, though. It's really, really pretty. Yeah, I've never seen any mountains like it. It's, It's my favorite. And Morgan, what did you think of this area? Mm, yum. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's really easy to see why the Dolomites are kind of the place where people go to get their photos taken because the mountains are unique. And I mean, I grew up in Idaho, so I know mountains. I love mountains. Kind of always go somewhere where there's mountains or sea. But the Dolomites have limestone peaks that just come out like shark's teeth almost. Mm-hmm. But then you might walk around you know, two hours later on the trail, all of a sudden it's, it's not craggy peaks. It's these round stone peaks that looks like a bear took its claws and scraped it to the side. And then the next, you know, an hour down the road, you're, you feel like you're on a, like a sheep pasture. Mm-hmm. So it just, it changes and changes and changes. My friend Dave and his wife came out this last summer, we planned a second trip and they did it for their honeymoon. And it was funny because he said, you know, you really get your money's worth out of this hike because you just see so many different things. All right. I think that's a good transition. Let's talk about how you can actually do this hike. So it looks to me like this is pretty much a summer hike because you're going to have pretty severe winter conditions. Yeah, it is because you're so high up. So it sounds like July is a pretty good time to go and probably August too, though I know August can be very crowded in Europe because everybody's on vacation. Yeah. I would try to avoid August, Um, maybe the first week of August and July would be great. I think if you're prepared, though, you know, mid-June through mid-October would be fine. You just have to expect that sometimes you're going up and over a pass. So the Refugio Lagazoi is at the top of an incredibly steep mountain. So that might be a spot where you just have to be prepared if you're a little bit on the shoulder that you might have to wait. Sometimes you can hike back down and take a bus around if you need to, if the weather's really bad. But it would probably be a freak storm in mid-June to mid-October. Okay. I think on your blog, it looked like you guys did roughly a five-day trip and you did part of the Altavia. Can you talk about that? And also, so about the generally how far you guys went and how long it took. And then also what it would look like if somebody wanted to do the whole trip, if you have a, a sense of that. Yeah, sure. So I think the the whole Altavia One Trail is about 10 days in it. There's easy bus connections at the beginning and at the middle and at the end. So obviously with, you know, family and kids hiking, I didn't want to make them hate it. So the five days felt like a really good period so that we didn't get overwhelmed with it. And so we started at the beginning of the trail in Lago de Bryce, which is a beautiful lake. It's like the pearl of the Dolomites. And it's crowded because people will go there to just go to the lake. They're not actually doing the trail. But after about five minutes, you're kind of isolated, which is great. And so the first day is we did about 12 kilometers because we wanted to get past the first hut most people stop at is after about three hours of hiking. But we wanted to kind of get to a nicer hut with better, basically better food. So we made the first day pretty long. And then the second day, we went from Fodara Vedla to the Refugio Lavarella, and that was about nine kilometers. And Lavarella is stunning. It's in this little yeah. valley, and it's just the cows actually come up onto the deck. 
Yeah, that was my favorite one. It was Why was that your favorite, Sage? Because of Lake Club, I'm supposed to be getting a t-shirt, but I haven't gotten mine yet, which I'm pretty mad about. But we basically woke up at 6 a.m. in the morning and there's this icy lake next to La Varela. And you'd wake up at 6 in the morning, you'd jump in, you're part of Lake Club and you get a t-shirt, but I haven't gotten mine yet. And there were cows everywhere. That was so much fun. I was with my friend and my sister and we went, we were out there until dark. We went swimming in the water at night and then also we played with the cows and we found some frogs. And <laughs> it was awesome. That I love that place. And so yeah. just to be clear, so that you guys, I, I know you did two trips on the Alta Via. One, it sounds like you did another one later with your sister as well. Because the first trip, it was just the two of you, right? Yeah, the first trip, it was the two of us. And the second trip, we had family, friends and friends and Oh, man, we had. Well, we talked it up so much. We had our friends from college came from D.C. We had friends from Romania. We had friends from Italy and friends from Germany. And so we went in a group of 12. Wow, that's a big group. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And strangely enough, at Lavarella, it's basically it has its own brewery there as well and a sauna in the back garden area. But we all sit down together at like seven o'clock to eat together everyone that's staying there and two fellas from the next table actually went to high school with my friend dave's new wife and they started chatting up and they were like this is incredible we meet in the middle of the dolomite mountains and we went to high school together that's funny Mm -hmm. all right then the third day from lavarella was to okay i'm I'm gonna i'm not gonna be able to say this so i'm gonna let you say the name of the place uh lagazoi refugio lagazoi which is on a good day probably top 10 places for views that you could possibly get anywhere it's incredible problem is sometimes there's you're going to be socked in with fog fortunately when we went there the second time it was all fog but the first time we went there was bright and sunny it was super pretty yeah i think it's at 2700 meters so whatever feet that is and it's serviced by a cable car from the valley so you do during the daytime, it gets pretty crowded with people from Venice coming up for family reunions or, or whatnot. But it's also cool, too, because some people who are older or have mobility problems can actually use the gondola and, and get up there and, and see these views. But after about five o'clock, everyone filters out and you're just left with the hikers. And when you have your whole place yourself at Lagatsoi, it's a 360 panoramic view of just limestone mountains and dark green emerald valleys and the birds are flying around and and they have a barrel sauna on the deck with a window. Oh, wow. So you're in your robe in a sauna on the top of a mountain. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad at all. Okay. And then the, the fourth day from there, where did you go? Yeah. So we actually, on the fourth day, we went off the trail a little bit because that third day is really quite a challenge to get to Lagatsui. The final ascent is it's pretty brutal, kind of takes it, takes it out of you a little bit. So we went off the Altavia one trail proper and we took the gondola downhill. So I don't know about you, but sometimes the downs are a lot worse for me than, than the ups. And the Rexcar yeah. party kind of felt the same too. So we, we diverted a little bit. We took the gondola down and instead of taking the normal route to Cinque Torre, we actually took an alternate route. Uh, I think it's called 44. But what that does is it allows you to go on some scrambling paths where you get to scramble up the rocks and in between some caverns and then go around Avaro, which is this massive stone. It's incredible. And you get to stop off at the Refugio Avaro 
which is my favorite place to eat in the world. And we, we make sure to make it there for lunch. And then we finish. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. But then from Avro, it's about a 30 minute sort of gentle downhill to the Refugio Cinquatori. And that's where we stayed on the fourth night. And that's a Refugio that's right on the base of the Cinquatori rock formation. And so Sage, what did you think of doing some hiking that was basically rock scrambling instead of trail walking? Oh, it wasn't too hard. We were really nervous because there was a storm. It was lightning. It was pretty exciting. And then so the last day you go from Cinque Torre to Cortina d'Ampezzo? Yeah. So we start basically Cortina d'Ampezzo is sort of this hub. It's kind of the place that most people start. And there's a, a good bus connection there. So basically we used the bus to get to the trailhead. And the trailhead is so busy with tourists or whatnot that you it's just best to take a public transport bus in, walk the five days down the Altavia one. And then once you get to Cinque Torre, there's a wooded path that goes back into Cortina d'Ampezzo. So some of the people in our party this year, they were tired. So they just basically took a bus from the Cinque Torre area back to Cortina. But we like to take the longer path. So it, it's about 15 kilometers to get basically down back into the valley where Cortina d'Ampezzo is. Are you starting then in the middle and heading north and then looping south? Or are you starting at the very northern end and heading south and looping back? We're starting at the very northern end. Okay. Um, and then we're going down the trail for four days. And then on the looping fifth day. Back. Yeah, it, it's kind of, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a loop. and But it's using the public buses in order to do that loop. Okay, that makes sense. So you're doing basically four days heading south from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't want to do 10 full days. We just found our own way back to the valley where then we can take the bus back to or either park in Cortina or park where the trailhead is and the bus will just sort of get you around. Okay. And you mentioned that at one point you got up to about 2,700 meters, which is around 9,000 feet probably. And from what I looked at in looking up the trail, it doesn't seem like it ever gets really higher than that, which means it's, in my view, that altitude elevation is not really a major issue. Is that the way you guys felt? It was never like you were at an uncomfortably high altitude? No, no, never. What did you have to carry during the day when you were hiking? You have this pack. You have to make sure it's very comfortable since you're going to be carrying it around all day. In there, you have water. You have two pairs of shirts, a pair of pants, socks, hiking socks undergarments and oh yeah the raincoat and then you have your slides that you have to wear inside because you can't wear your hiking boots inside of the huts you have to bring slides or slippers well there are enough locations where you can refill your water or did you guys actually refill from streams or lakes or how did you manage that during the the days well it depends so areas have different supplies i guess the first day there's a Huta halfway, and so you can refill at the Huta. The second day, there were quite a few springs that were p- turned into basically like a cow watering trough along the side of the trail. Mm-hmm. So you could just fill up with your water bottle before it hit the trough, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the third day, Lakatsui. So when you get to the Hutas that are perched on the top of a cliff, that's where you have to be a little bit more mindful about your water because they have to obviously haul it up by bottle. They're not going to have a lot of water supply at the very top of the cliff. In fact, some of those refugios that are at the very, very top don't have showers for people staying there. Uh, okay. 
And then for navigation, you mentioned the, I'm going to say Cicerone, but I, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. There's that series of books and they have an Altavia One guide. Is that the book that you guys followed? It is. Yeah. It's the Altavia One, Altavia Two Cicerone guide. It, honestly, I, I got fancy and bought the tobacco maps and I did a, a Kamut sort of GPS thing. But the book is plenty. It, okay. It works really well. And how do you get to this trip? It sounds like if you can get to Venice, that's the easiest way to get to the trailhead. It is. It is. Yeah. There's some other smaller airports like Bolzano or Innsbruck, but Venice is the biggest airport. And there are bus connections that go to Cortina, D'Ampezzo two or three times a day in the summertime. So in the winter, the bus system is not anywhere near the same, but in the summer that works. Okay. So it sounds like this is a trip where you're actually carrying everything you need for the trip in your pack and that you're not having a service shuttle ahead luggage or you're not carrying, and you're not also on the other side of things, you're not carrying a sleeping bag or anything like that. It's pretty much just your clothes that you need for the trip and your personal items. Yeah. I'm not aware of any luggage transfer because it is, some of the places are pretty remote and only a Jeep track would really get there. So I I imagine that would not make sense for a service to be profitable, but you don't really need to carry that much. So you just have one outfit to eat in. And then your hiking clothes. So they take care of everything because they have the the toiletries and the linens and the towels and all that stuff. Do you stay somewhere the night before you start hiking or are you taking the bus and then you start walking that day? I would definitely recommend staying the night before in Cortina d'Ampezzo or in a town called Dobiaco because... The first day is really hard. So if you're trying to commute from somewhere else and then start, it's probably going to be miserable. So we always try to get the eight o'clock bust so that we can start right at nine o'clock and head up the mountain. So how long in advance did you have to make reservations for the huts or for the refugees, yeah. I should say? <laughs> well, as you can tell, we kind of like the nice refugios. So the first year I planned nine months in advance. And then I had this group of 12 people. So I was kind of playing travel agent for my friends. And so, again, I planned about nine months in advance to get 12 beds in the same huta each consecutive night. Okay. I think it would be easier if you just had two people. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Sure. And Sage, for you, what was the hardest part about doing this? When we were in the group, there were a lot of people that were struggling. And I felt really bad watching them climb up the mountain. There were two groups usually. It was a fast group and a slow group. And usually I was in the fast group. My mom was in the fast group sometimes, but sometimes she was in the slow group just to kind of guide the people because she's a very good hiker, but some people needed guidance during the hike. And watching them get back, it was so emotional sometimes because they felt, I don't know, like they achieved something so great. And it was hard, but it was also cool watching them do it. Also, some of the trails are really hard. Going to Nagatsui, going up, you go, you basically, you go up the mountain and then you go, you get to this like gorge in between the mountain and then you see Nagatsui, but you have to go down the whole mountain and go up another mountain. And uh. the faces on some of the people that we were with, they, they were like, what? Yeah. Like, they were like, all that was for nothing. They were so sad. Yeah. They were like yeah. super disappointed. But you know so, what? It's still everyone's favorite day, even though it's a very challenging day. Yeah, that hike is really beautiful. But when I saw other people get demotivated, I would be demotivated as well. So that was the hardest part. 
Because I'd be like, oh, they're not going to have that much fun. It's not as fun if they're not having fun. So that's why I like hiking with my mom alone, because we're both really motivated and excited. Sometimes the people we were with, they would get really sad, just like plain sad. So I have an important question. It'll just be between us. We don't have to tell your mom the answer. Who hikes faster, you or your mom? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I think Sage better. (laughs) (laughs) You can be honest. If you went a whole day, who's got a faster pace? Maybe my mom, actually, because she's good at cardio. I'm more like all at once. I'm more like sprinting and not okay. like I'll go really fast and I'll take a break and I'll go really fast and then I'll be out of energy. I'm like a cheetah and my mom is like a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's a good answer. That's a diplomatic answer. What was your favorite refugio for each of you? I think Lake Club really made Lava Rella. The hut itself wasn't the coolest part, but the outside of the hut, all of the lakes there were two lakes there were woods and cows and it was just so beautiful it was so much fun it was the activities that you could do there and there's a lot of mountain bikers doing long distance mountain biking that Ah, that go there and the mountain biking crowd is generally pretty fun too especially the germans and austrians that get going on their tours so it's just a very jovial atmosphere yeah i have no idea how you could bike that trail I, I saw a part, there's a part at the first day of the Altavia one where you have to use a, it's like a little Kletterstag, like a little bit of a rope, yeah. like a, a wire rope. And it's not super treacherous, but you really do need at least one hand on it. And I saw dudes with their bike over the shoulder, one hand on the rope, just do, 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 do. With yeah. a kid yeah. on their shoulders. <laughs> there, there was a guy who had, he was carrying his like five or six year old kid on his shoulders. He had both hands free. It was just walking up there like it was nothing he was i was like that dude has to be austrian because he's fit what about any refugios that you would avoid that you went to you just like "Eh, i wouldn't go back to that one no no okay i think they were all nice yeah i did not like uh no no i i didn't like the cinquatori okay well, we only didn't like them because they told us to be quiet at after 10. We were, <laughs> we, we, were getting, we were getting a little loud because we bring out the board games and with 12 people. Sure. I, uh, yeah. I know. think it was, it was more of a German atmosphere because Italians, they're loud. It doesn't matter what time it is. They're loud and they're having fun. But they, after 9.30, they were like, stop, go to bed. Uh, okay. And it was kind of a bummer. That's interesting. One night you feel like you're in a very German place. And then the next night you yeah. like you're in a very Italian place. That's one of the fun things on any long distance hike in Europe. The cultures are so close together that you can literally walk from one culture into another one. Mm-hmm. What, okay. Important question for you, Sage. What was your favorite meal on the Altavia? Oh, this one's easy. It was the spinach ravioli with the little tomato sauce on top of it not tomato sauce tomato bits but in a in a sauce tomato bit sauce it wasn't like bolognese or tomato sauce Uh it was fresh cut tomatoes and they were in some type of garlicky sauce olive oil or something and where did you have that so good avro okay i think yeah yeah it was awesome it was the best meal definitely because most a lot of the huts were kind of like german food austrian food more bolognese. I know that's Italian, but they have more fresh stuff on the Italian side. And then usually they have more heavy knurde and pasta. It's not that good for hiking for me because it makes me feel tired and it makes me feel drowsy. So I like to have fresh food. 
not salad. I, would, I don't want to accuse you of liking salad, so I won't accuse you of that. I like uh, salads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan, what about you? Did you have a meal that stood out for you? Yeah, I would definitely say the same thing. Refugio Avaro. Mm-hmm. Oh, that menu is phenomenal. They had so many good things. We got that salad with the walnuts and the goat cheese. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. As you look back on this trip, why does it stand out as something that you think other people should do? Why is it worth it? I think it's worth it because almost anyone could do it. It's not hard. You don't have to be a crazy bat wingsuit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't have to be like extreme sports person. You can just be a normal person and want to hike and have good food and just spend time with family and friends. And it's a really good way to do that because you're getting fit. There's a feeling of accomplishment after you finish and it kind of makes the atmosphere like so much better. You're so much happier. You feel like you've achieved something great and then you can feel like you can really relax. If you compare it to a normal activity like game night or something, like going to the movies, it's it's just different because when you're hiking, you have, like I said, that feeling of accomplishment and it's great. It's just, it's a good feeling. Morgan, what about you? Any thoughts on why this is a trip that you think is really worth people considering to do? Well, definitely the scenery. I don't know any place where you can get so quickly into such majestic and varied scenery. And it's quiet. And you can go the first four days, you don't hear a car. Yeah. When we were descending into Cortina on the fifth day, my friend Christina said, oh, I hear a car. That's so weird. I didn't even realize that I didn't hear it. So that piece is is incredible. And you get this cultural experience. There's outdoor World War I museums. You walk by battle trenches. There's exhibits of the animals. There's marmot poking their heads up everywhere. And the cows. The cows are really amazing <laughs> with their bells on their necks and... Also, the quality of food and the comfort of the huts makes it so that you can bring along friends or family members that maybe aren't into hiking as much as you are, but they still have a good time too. Do you guys have a particular memory for either of you that stands out from this trip? Yeah. On the third day to Lagatsui, which is pretty rough at the end, we got a, a text message that my friend Ashley wasn't doing so well. And my husband was walking with her that day. That was the day I went on the fast group. And, you know, he's saying, uh, maybe you should come back and, and help. She's having issues. And we were all like, I don't know if we can go down and back up again. <laughs> and we were just sitting, waiting. And it took a little time. But once Ashley came in, she just walked in. She just started crying. We just gave her a giant hug. And she hugged me so tight. And she's like, I did it. I effing did it. I've been training for nine months for this and I did it. She just reached a place going through that suffering and then coming out on top, literally. And it it was just beautiful. All right. Anything you guys would have done differently that that didn't work out in the way you handled this trip, either of the two times you you hiked on it? I would not bring such a large group. Okay. (laughs) Leave some of those people at home. Maybe my mom, of course, and then my dad. My dad's a good hiker. My sister, I don't think she enjoys it that much. She's good at hiking, but she's not really into hiking or she's not really into 
cardio or long distance things. I'm not either, but hiking's different. I don't like jogging or anything. That's boring. <laughs> sure. Especially here where I live. It's not the same. My friend Amina, my best friend Amina, I take. Yeah. Okay, so and, smaller group and with a good friend. Yeah. And what about you, Morgan? Yeah. Yeah. The first year when we impulsively invited one of Sage's friends to take one of the spots. That was that, bad. That was that was really, really bad. So Fortunately, her mom is the most amazing lady in the world. And she drove eight hours one way, picked her up at five in the morning and then drove back to Germany so that we could do that hike. But yeah, I wouldn't always make sure that if there's a kid coming, that they're mentally prepared. Yeah, I think it's true with any trip you do anywhere. You really have to consider who are the people and what are we trying to accomplish? And is there a way to design the days in a way that they can handle it? based mm-hmm. on their skill level. It's less about the physical and it's more about the mental. Yeah. I think that's right. Like you were saying, you have to really want to do it, right? There are people mm-hmm. who, if they're not excited about doing it, when it gets hard, they're going to want to give up. If you really mm-hmm. want to do it when it gets hard, you see that as almost a highlight, right? It's a challenge and you want to take it on. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it really does depend yeah, yeah. on people, how people feel about it. Well, thank you both for telling me about your hikes on the Alta Via One. But while I have you, I've got a few more questions, if that's okay. 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 So for Morgan, what's the one trip or hike that you've done besides this one that others shouldn't miss out on? Definitely say the Fisherman's Trail on the Rota Vic, Vic, I can't say it right, Vic, Vicentina. <laughs> I, you know, I've looked up how to say it in Portuguese and I can't say it either. Let's go with Rota Vicentina in English. <laughs> Rota Vicentina. One of the cool things about the Fisherman's Trail is that the people there almost all speak English. So you get in conversations with the hotel owners and whatnot. And I actually asked one of the hotel owners, why can I not pronounce any of the words correctly? I look it up online and I I try to pronounce it. And he said that Portuguese, when you pronounce it, they eliminate most of the vowels and they only use one of the vowels in the word. Ah, okay. So it kind of sounds smushed together and nothing at all like it looks in the written. So, okay. So what's the next trip on your list? So I want to do... The Via Transylvanica. I read about it and my friend Karina, who actually went on the hike, the Alta Via hike last year, she and I bought a farm in Transylvania last week or two weeks ago. And then wow. I thought, <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, oh, this is be really cool. And then I looked up the founding of the Via Transylvanica and it's basically two or three women that work in a nonprofit basically formed this long distance trail of 1100 kilometers in five years. Wow. And they went to the villages themselves and they talked with people who live in the villages that have an extra bedroom, basically signed them up into the database. And when you do the hike, you stay in people's homes and they cook for you and and you stay in there and it's like seven euros a day or something. So are you going to do a section of it? I think a section. I haven't narrowed it down. I'm going next month to visit. So going to kind of see maybe the highlights, but I'm thinking four or five days. Okay. So I have one piece of advice for that trip. And that is don't stay in any home where the person's last name is Dracula. That's only, <laughs> since you are crossing Transylvania. So, yeah. Um, all right. And Morgan, last question for you. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done when you were hiking? Mm. Well, I would say not checking the weather report for lightning storms when you're crossing over the Dolomite peaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to have a good handle on when the storm is supposed to be going by because you're pretty exposed. Did you get caught up at a pass when one was over you? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were running between rocky outcroppings and like run from one to the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's good. All right. And Sage, one question for you. What's the most resourceful thing you've done when you've been hiking? I don't know. Okay, so I think that the first time when we did the Altavia one and we did three quarters of day one, then walked downhill, slept for six hours and then turned around and did day one and day two all in one day. And you never complained once. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, thank you. She doesn't want to brag about it, but I can see from your mom's perspective, that's something where you might worry as a mother that, you know, you're with an 11 year old and it's a lot of extra work and maybe there's going to be a whole new situation I have to worry about forcing her to do all this hiking. But it sounds like you handled it pretty well and didn't complain and showed that you could do it. Yeah, I didn't really see it as super resourceful because I enjoyed doing it a lot. I was really looking forward to it. And when we finished, I wanted to do more. I wasn't really like, oh, I'm so proud of myself. I was like, oh, let's do more. I'm excited for the next day. I wasn't really thinking back on it that much. But yeah, now that I think back on it, it was really hard. It was definitely. <laughs> Nowadays, I probably would have complained if it were something in household or something like that. I always complain. So Sage, do you still want to do these trips in the future? Are you still excited about doing longer hiking trips? Oh yeah, definitely. It's the, it's the only time when I do something that I don't have to and don't fight with my mom about it. Oh, I think that's a perfect place to end the show. (laughs) Morgan and Sage Fielder, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again to Morgan and Sage Fielder for coming on the show. Because they hiked twice the northern half of the Altavia 1, I thought it might be helpful to listeners if I gave you a a rundown of a possible full through-hike itinerary. I pulled this from Max Adventure, the company that my family used on the Tour de Mont Blanc and will be using again this coming summer on a different hike. So day one on the Max Adventure itinerary, you take a bus from Cortina to Lake Debrez, and you hike to Refugio Sen. That's six miles or 10 kilometers. The next day, day two, you hike to Refugio Fanes, and that's six miles and about 10 kilometers again. Day three, you hike to Refugio Lagatsui, seven and a half miles more, 12 kilometers. Day four of the Max Adventure itinerary is to Refugio Nuvalau, which is 8 miles or 13 kilometers. Day 5, Refugio Cita di Fiume. That's 7.5 miles or 12 kilometers. Day 6, Refugio Coldai, 6 miles and 10 kilometers. Day 7, Refugio Paso Duran, which is 12 miles or about 20 kilometers. Day 8, Refugio Pian de Fontana, which is 10 miles or 16 kilometers. And then the last day on their itinerary, day 9 of hiking, you reach La Muda, which is 7 miles or 12 kilometers. And then you take a bus to Bellona to end your hike and to your onward transportation. So that's a possible itinerary for a full through hike from Max Adventure. Or you could find 
other itineraries, I'm sure, on other sites, but that's just one possible example. So I hope the conversation with Morgan and Sage inspired you to hike the Altavia One. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, I want to remind you of Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com, where you can get tasty and filling vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. You don't have to be a vegetarian or a vegan to love these meals. In February, the month before this episode is coming out, I did a hike in Henry Coe State Park in California, and I brought outdoor herbivore meals for my dinners. One dinner that I particularly enjoy is the blackened quinoa, which is black beans and quinoa with some other good stuff in there, good spices. That's just one of the options you can find on Outdoor Herbivore. If you want to try Outdoor Herbivore, Trails Worth Hiking listeners get a 10% discount on their order. Use the discount code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, for your discount on delicious backpacking meals at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, let's talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel an ancient pilgrimage route through forested hills and local villages. We stay in private guest houses with locals. Along the route, we'll pass numerous important shrines. In fact, the trail itself is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Emperors themselves traveled the route. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Nakahechi route of the Komanu Kodo Pilgrimage Trail in the Wakayama Mountains of Kansai in southern Japan. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode, or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, don't hesitate to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.